Hello and welcome to the Desert Tiger Podcast. I am your host here on the DTP. My name, of course, is Colton G. And this week on the show here on Desert Tiger, I am joined by singer-songwriter Kim Churchill. Of course, before I go ahead and introduce Kim to you, the audience, I want to go ahead and thank you, the listeners of the podcast, for going ahead and checking out last week's episode, which featured reggae artist Exco Levi, as we spoke about his latest album, Narrative, as well as recently receiving the 2019 Black Business Professional and Association Harry Jerome Award for Entertainment. I want to go ahead and thank those of you who also shared that episode on your social media with your friends and family. And for those of you who sent some feedback about how much you loved the positive message that Exco is trying to spread around the world with his music. Kim Churchill has spent most of the last decade as a nomadic bard. A classically trained guitarist who decided to start out as a busker in his local region of Australia, Kim quickly took to the road playing every town that would have him, no matter the distance. This mindset has allowed Kim to eventually progress onto the stage and into the studio, where suddenly the road wasn't the only thing calling, is sky and sea would yearn for his tales. After finally finding radio success, a change of pace was necessary, leading Kim to reflect inward and set his feet, but just for a moment. Just long enough to come back to the studio with a newfound drive, feeling lighter than ever before, knowing that he no longer needs to chase after the sun. Kim Churchill has recently embarked on a journey. He has started a project of four EPs. These four EPs, written and recorded in four separate countries, are all connected in a few different ways. Some of those ways you're going to hear today in my conversation with Kim. And the first of these EPs is entitled I Am. It was written and recorded in Berlin, Germany, with a hip-hop house producer called Vincent Kocamp. We are also going to speak with Kim all about working with a different style of producer than he's normally used to. Like I said earlier, Kim sort of wanted to change pace, and part of that was challenging himself by evolving his sound. And we're going to give you a taste of exactly where that evolution is taking Kim by playing you the first single off of this upcoming EP. And Kim Churchill wants to remind you that there's no need in chasing after the sun. We've been chasing the sun for millions and millions of days now And looking for things that don't like to be found been chasing our dreams in millions and millions of ways now. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, oh, oh. We get home from work so tired with nothing to say now. I'm looking at you and you're looking at me. I can tell 
joining me here on the desert tiger podcast you're welcome thank you so much for having me i'm i it's an absolute pleasure to have a uh, world traveler such as yourself join us (laughs) cool i've already mentioned you're a bit of a nomad but let's start on how we got there where does the love of music begin for kim churchill when does a guitar find its ways into your fingers (laughs) <laughs> um my my mum yeah she was she's quite a musical lady very creative person and very early on like just about the same time I was starting school she kind of got a guitar and started getting some guitar lessons herself and I'm not sure if the intention was always to sort of pass it on to me but I sort of seemed to take an interest and she would 
kind of basically give me the lesson she had just had. On a Wednesday afternoon, she would go and have her lesson, then she'd come home, and then she'd give me the lesson she had just had. And and after about six months, months, I was sort of so into it um, that, you know, she couldn't really get her hands on the guitar very often. And um, so they got me guitar lessons pretty soon after that. And... Yeah, I mean, my parents have always been phenomenally supportive, but I mean, really, it's it's my mum who who got me started in the first place as well. That's kind of a very beautiful way where, like, she was passing it on as she was learning it, and then your passion for the instrument just sort of took over from there. Yeah, it was a it's a very beautiful kind of typical mum thing to do, isn't it? And and like, I thought it was really cool that she yeah she was it was so immediate, you know, it was this nice little kind of I guess it became like a little tradition of ours that we that we would undergo together each each Wednesday and yeah quite a beautiful little story hmm. okay so from there how do you transition to playing what type of lessons did you end up taking was it just like a basic one was it like classical guitar yeah it was classical guitar so I after that I started to some interest and it, it, immediately when I was getting lessons I was sort of you know I was like red hot chili peppers and like um sort of the Beatles and stuff that was sort of simple and you know that most people that were learning the guitar would learn but then dad sort of started to notice I was really into it and he said listen I think you should start sitting classical guitar exams and getting classical guitar lessons and his kind of deal was he's like I'll buy you a I'll buy you an electric guitar if you take some classical guitar lessons yeah, he played his little role as well. So I started taking classical lessons and then I, I sat classical guitar exams uh, kind of one a year for about 10 years uh, over the course of kind of growing up and going through high school. And then from there, I started falling in love with Bob Dylan and songwriters that started really making me feel like I wanted to write songs. And also busking. I started busking and I was playing this kind of bluesy, rootsy stuff on the streets. Uh, and, you know, that was kind of how I sort of got my dream of being a, a sort of you know professional musician up and running was playing on the streets and that's how I I guess I tra- transitioned out of classical music because it, the, the kinds of things that were getting attention on the streets and helping me build crowds and kind of you know have good busking sessions was playing harmonica and having a stomp box and a tambourine sort of doing the bluesy one-man bandy kind of thing so I kind of went down that path from there. Hmm. How does one transition from a classical setting where you're doing exams and you're learning like the very basics, but you're also learning a lot of the keys and you're learning a lot of the actual like key parts of playing the instrument to going to busking to which like a lot of professional musicians may more so go towards like the um, symphony side of things. Busking is definitely a different path. Yeah. Well, dad kind of wanted me to go to the conservatorium and I thought about it because, like, it sounds ridiculous, but I have a kind of a competitive streak, and there was something nice about the structure of learning classical music and getting grades and trying to do well and practicing really hard so I could get, you know, the best mark I could and that kind of thing. I, I enjoyed the structure of it, but I enjoyed performing a lot more, and there wasn't an enormous amount of opportunities. Like, at first, when I was playing classical guitar, I was kind of getting some gigs, uh, you know, in the corner of kind of wedding receptions and and uh, maybe like art exhibition openings and stuff like that. But in terms of like getting on little festival bills and playing pub gigs and stuff, I had to play this kind of music. And and actually, it's interesting because it was kind of I was pretty I was pretty happy to put down the classical music because I didn't really love 
I, as a musical lover, like I didn't want to listen to classical guitar. I didn't really want to listen to classical music. So I was discovering music that I loved and I was beginning to play music that meant a lot more to me uh, than the classical music did. But, you know, I was able to sort of, I guess, weave and, and, and work the, the knowledge and the classical understanding um, into the music I was making. And it, it's kind of going into the blues world as well. The blues music is, is one of the most simple uh, sort of genres of music, I would say. So it was also kind of liberating because everybody wanted me to do that. And I was able to do it very well, I think, because I had the classical background. So all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is so much easier than what I'm doing. Everybody loves it so much more. And, you know, especially like dad was kind of fine with me not going to the conservatorium once he saw like how successful I was being as a busker. I think that's all he really cared about was like, I want him to, you know, be able to make a career out of this. And, mm-hmm. you know, once I sort of started coming home with these big bags of money, he was like, oh, okay, cool. Well, I can't really argue with that. <laughs> and he was really happy. Well, I'm glad that he was willing to get behind your dreams no matter where they led you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's a good fella. All right. So, was there a bit of a learning curve going cuz saying that like you're playing in the corner of a wedding like there's not really much of a stage presence going on there, but once you're <laughs> busking, you're for you to be using a stomp box plus playing guitar plus singing, you are the key focus of any everybody's attention. So, like what was the learning curve? Yeah, it was it was really nerve-wracking at first actually because there's a certain Playing, playing uh, as background music, it kind of just can be soul-destroying in a sense because nobody really cares enormously, or, or, or at least they care, but they're not really paying attention to what you're doing. But in general, that gives you a lot of freedom to, to perform whatever the hell you want to perform, you know, to play whatever you want to play, to extend songs, to shorten songs, to just, you know, kind of do whatever you want. But then once you're performing uh, and you have a large crowd of people that are very attentive on you, it becomes... Yeah, a lot more, um, every moment is, is important and every moment needs to be considered. And, and so the pressure of that, it, it, when I first started doing it, it was really nerve-wracking. Like I was probably 15 or 16 when I started doing my first kind of gigs, you know, on the pub scene and, and busking and stuff. And especially the gigs in the pubs, like I would get so nervous, I would like sneak out to the car and drink beers that I'd had like an older friend buy me from the from the bottle shop, you know what I mean? Just so that I could, I'd had a couple of beers and I was feeling a bit kind of loose and confident. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it ended up becoming quite simple and, and quite, um, it was just a, 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 my dream, I was so determined to, to, to live out my dream that the, the challenge of becoming, uh, you know, brave and being the center of attention was sort of, you know, I just, I got, got that out of the way pretty quickly really so that I could just get on with playing gigs and, and, you know, sort of following my dream. Okay. So at what point do you start hitting the road? And was it your um, experience as a busker that allowed you to do so? Yes, exactly. So when I first started busking, I come from a little town called Marimbula, which is uh, about six hours south of Sydney, tiny place, sort of about seven or 8,000 people. But there's a lot of small towns around Marimbula and there's a there's a real nice kind of little market scene you know everybody has markets every town will have a market like every third Sunday or something or every every Saturday or every once you know the first Saturday of every month kind of thing so I had about five or six different markets that I was able to get to in my local area where I was busking and um, that 
basically that that was going quite well and mum and dad could see that and I explained to mum actually on the way back from Sydney on the way back from my last classical guitar exam at the Sydney Conservatorium I told mum about my my dream to basically buy a camper van and build a little home in it and just find as many of these markets as I could all over Australia as I was telling her this story we were driving past another city in Australia Canberra which was in between Marimbula and Sydney and she pulled off the highway it was awesome she pulled off the highway and we went into Canberra and we looked in some car dealerships and we bought a van mum went to the back and got a loan on my behalf and we bought a van that afternoon <laughs> and uh, drove it back to Marimbula and you know I had to pay mum and dad off and I busked nearly every day for about two months I would just busk everywhere I was busking it with this guy that had a coffee van. He would let me plug in and busk with him. I was busking at an ice creamery in the, in the main street. Um, anywhere that would have, have me, I was busking. And I, I paid mum back, yeah, in a couple of months. And, um, and then I had the van, it was mine. And I, I hit the road from there and I haven't been, I go back to Marimbula for a day or two really. I haven't been back in, for more than that in about eight or nine years since I left. Wow. Okay. So from, yeah. I mean, your mom just continuing to drive that dream <laughs> and show support, just pure love. Yeah. Just pure love. I love, it, I, that's amazing. Yeah, it was beautiful. And, and sort of the, the basking as well was a, it was a real pivotal way to, because I think a lot of, what can quite often happen to artists in Australia is they, they might base themselves in a city somewhere and they think, oh, okay, I'll cut my teeth here in, you know, Melbourne, say, cut my teeth in Melbourne I'll build up a following and once I've got my shit going on I'll start touring but I don't necessarily think that's often a very good approach I think it's better to be showing your face all all over the place all over the world if you can be and just establishing pockets of people that you know that you can travel to and play for and and so the busking allowed me to to immediately begin covering an enormous amount of ground in terms of all the different places I was playing so yeah, the, the whole busking thing and the whole leaving in my van and being able to live in my van and I used to do crazy drives, man. I, I'd say yes to every gig I could get and like I'd have a gig in, um, you know, in somewhere near Marimbula and then I'd play a gig in Byron Bay the next night, which is about a 14-hour drive or something and I would just drive like four or five hours after the gig and then sleep on the side of the road and then drive the other, you know, nine or ten hours the next day and get there just in time to play and and that was all sort of facilitated by the busking sessions I was doing and, and the, the fact that I could make pretty good money that way and sort of support myself. So it all kind of led on from each other really, really neatly and well. All right. So how do you transition from being on the road in a van and busking to making your way into an actual studio and recording? Well, I got really lucky actually because there's this fantastic, uh, there's a festival called Byron Bay Blues and Roots Festival and there's a very, very big festival. They'll have things like Bob Dylan and Paul Simon and uh, Neil Young and things like that headline it. And they have like a busking competition that happens in Byron Bay in the week leading up to the festival. And I... I basically went in that competition and I won the competition and the the prize was you get a gig at Blues Fest and so I did that gig and um, that was kind of a big deal in a, in a lot of ways in Australia that busking competition quite a big deal it's a cool thing to win and from that I immediately kind of got enough attention from like the the, the wider sort of music industry 
one of the judges of that competition was the producer that made my first album. So that kind of fell into line, and one of the one of the main guys that runs Blues sort of started to manage me, found me a booking agent, and then very quickly, in sort of several months after winning that competition, you know, I moved into a very different phase of my career, which is we were starting to do ticketed shows, and we were getting festival offers, and and um, and everything became very structured very quickly, um, which was kind of ideal. You know, I, was, I felt like I was ready to take that step. I'd done all the musical work. I I was in a period where I really enjoyed being in the recording studio. I could just be in there all day making music. I was really full of passion and love for the process of recording. Um, and I just really sucked my teeth into it all. So from getting into the first studio and recording with Sword and Shield, from there you actually exactly. end up getting signed to a label in Canada. So how does that opportunity come about? Yeah, well, that was, um, I basically, once I had sort of, I started to get a bit more established in, in Australia, I, um, my manager was like, oh, you know, we need to get you to Canada, because he used to be a busker himself, and he had done some amazing sort of busking festivals and different bits and pieces in Canada, and he was really excited to get me there. And a few different things, like I, I sort of went to some, I went to this big Folk Alliance conference thing they have in Memphis, and I met quite a few Canadian people there. And I basically just made enough contacts and did enough work so that we could, we, we got me like, I don't know, four or five gigs over a few months. So there wasn't much there, but we were like, we're going to fill it in with busking and we're just going to, you know, we're just going to kind of pretend we have a Canadian tour, even though there's really not many gigs booked. And I got over there and I started playing the, the few little festivals, uh, the couple of festivals I had and a few little gigs I had. And quite immediately sort of started meeting people and getting more gigs. And it was actually a really full few months. I played an enormous amount of gigs in all kinds of random random places. Like I did the boat, the bathtub racing festival in Nanaimo. All kinds of like real funky, weird gigs. Anyway, I at that sort of about halfway through my trip, uh, I met a guy from a, from a Quebecois punk band called Grimskunk. And... Uh, and he he uh, he really liked what I did, and he gave me he organized a couple of gigs for me uh, in Quebec, and he worked for the record label Indica, um, and yeah, I mean it, it, that all happened quite quickly too. You know, they saw me, they liked me, they booked me a couple of gigs, they brought the right people from the label to the gigs, and uh, yeah, I think we were offered a deal. It might have been at the end of that few months I was there, and that was the first record deal. I had signed because I hadn't actually signed any deals in Australia. Quite a few people had given me advice to create sort of demand for yourself before signing your life away so you can get a much better deal. So I sort of waited in Australia. So yeah, it was the first record deal I ever signed was, um, was with Indica Records out of Montreal. That's pretty impressive. And I mean, huge shout out to Grim Skunk. I saw them back in 2014. Yeah. Great group. Nice. I would absolutely love to have them on the show sometime. But that's another like future. So once you sign to <laughs> Indica, like what's the movement forward from there? So from there, I I recorded my second album, which I recorded in uh, in Vancouver at Mushroom Studios. And I, I mean, basically from that point on, uh, I began touring really heavily. We're, by that time, you know, we'd done. Um, a bunch of festivals. I came back uh, the following summer and did, you know, a, a lot of the, the bigger festivals, things like Montreal Jazz Festival and Festival Dete and 
maybe we'd done Winnipeg Folk Festival that year. Yeah, a huge amount of festivals over the summer. And then, and then you know, we could we sort of were able to to book proper club shows and sell tickets and stuff like that. And then and then it was like three or four years of really intense touring across Canada and across the US and across Australia. And uh, I started to sort of plant the seeds I needed to in England and in Europe. And it was it, it was a brilliant time, but I really learned from that time, I guess, uh, at the end of that really intense period of touring, I was probably 24, 25, and uh, I'd really exhausted my, I was incredibly fatigued. I was sort of, uh, I had three vans in, in, in one in Australia, one in North America, and one in Europe. And, uh, you know, I'd been kind of drifting for nearly seven years. And, yeah, and, and, and I, was, I was releasing albums, or I'm still releasing albums. I'm kind of still on that journey, but I had a break a few years ago and, and mm. uh, kind of broke it up. <laughs> okay, so that being after uh, Silence Win? Exactly. So, so I recorded Silence Win, and that was a that was a different album. That one had uh, kind of a success that that mo- most of the success I've had as an artist has come through a lot of hard work and a lot of kind of determination. And I kind of like that in a way because it's it's you know I mean the, the moments of just going oh flipping heck I can't believe that just happened that's like a dream come true. You know they're not too regular. It's more like okay I've really really worked hard and I've had my sights set on this for a while and I've done all the right things and then it comes about and it's like wonderful that's that's a bunch of hard work paid off and I'm very grateful for it and I understand why I'm grateful for it uh, and so when something came along there was kind of all of a sudden there was this radio success to that album that, that I didn't understand it had, it had all of the success and I couldn't quantify it and uh, you know radio stations that I thought were incredibly cool like a lot cooler than I would ever be were sort of you know playing songs and I was like god I'm going to realise that I'm Taking it or something, you know what I mean? And, uh, <laughs> one day, and, and, the, one and, day and, they're going to show up and knock on the door of the van and tell me that it's over. Yeah, they're like, "Hey, Kim, you're actually not cool. We totally fucked this up. What were we thinking?" <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, so it was, it was, that was really that was a really exciting time. And and as I said, like it kind of in hindsight, it was it was a bit confusing and it it made me kind of anxious because I didn't understand why all of a sudden th- this particular you know, sort of little snippet of, of my, my music was, you know, having so much success and I it made me anxious because how do I do that again? You know what I mean? Like what have I what have I done in this situation that's so much better? I don't really understand what it is, but it must mm-hmm. be something because there's mm-hmm. there's all of this I sort of it really took my career to a new level. And and that was wonderful and that led to yeah, probably a good two and a half years of really, really hard touring there was you know there was a lot of radio play kind of across a lot of different countries uh, and there's a lot of places that I was playing gigs in and I I literally I just wore myself down to the bone I just traveled so much and, and it really was trying to make the most of, of this yeah this kind of uh, this confusing success that had happened with Silence Win the album and yeah, I kind of got to the end of that process, and that's when I, I had the break that I was talking about before. Was at the end of the Silence Win kind of saga, um, and part of the reason as well for that was that I, in that time, I'd recorded I don't know what seemed like a, a kind of a follow-up album, um, and I'd spent got a lot of money, a lot of time. I had put a hell of a lot of work into the thing, uh, and, and it took me in the end, it, it took eighteen months to to complete, and that was while I was touring. Well, the first year of it was probably while I was doing. And then after about 18 months, 
I just couldn't get it right, and I knew I couldn't get it right, and I, so I threw the whole thing in the bin and started from scratch, and that, that led to about about a year of uh, not touring as much and sort of laying down roots a little bit, and, and um, God, I needed that year in hindsight. It was a, even just, you know, throwing an album that you just worked on for 18 months of your life in the bin was quite an erratic decision. So it was the, the decision of a fatigued, confused person. Okay. Did that year allow you to reflect and grow and sort of understand the confusion that came from the success? I think so, yeah. I think now the, the time I spent off the road, you know, I made friends that had nothing to do with my music. You know, I made friends that didn't give a crap whether I played music. They, they weren't interested. Well, they, I mean, they were interested, but like we, we hadn't become friends because I'd met them through playing music, which as an adult, I had not really experienced. And it, it allowed me to just kind of, yes, see some parts of the world that weren't in the music industry. And that's been really good for me. That's kind of helped me mature as a person and helped me find out a little bit more about myself. Because as much as, you know, my, my life is this kind of crazy journey and, and it's constantly changing, constantly sort of uh, moving to new incredible places touring and playing music for a living kind of you see a, a quite a very specific part of part of the world and and you know you can kind of in an odd way you can be a bit sheltered from the realities of of the world so it's good for me to get off the road and just just be, just be a you know be a, just a normal person in a city just kind of meeting up with people and you know having a drink on the weekend and then having quiet times in the week and you know, sort of settling into a bit of routine and kind of all of that. So, yeah, but that year off was, was kind of pivotal in, in the person I am now. Um, I think as, as fantastic and phenomenal as traveling is, and it's not something that I'm going to give up anytime soon, you've got to stay grounded somehow. You know, you need those times of reflection and opportunities to sort of check in with yourself. And that, for me, was like so overdue that I needed a whole year of reflection time. Mm-hmm. Well, and it definitely came back with a good response considering that you charted on the Australian Recording Industry Association with the album that you ended up releasing after that break. Exactly. Yeah, that was a it was an important time and and Whitefall did chart and that was nice. And and it, it that was obviously yeah, the album I, I I wrote that in a week actually after I threw out the other album. So it was quite hilarious to sort of run my record labels through that stressful rigmarole but it charted and it gave me another opportunity to tour the world and you know probably a good 18 months of fantastic touring across north america and across europe and across australia yeah it it was a it was it was a weird time man it was a weird time for me but that album felt like the summit of a mountain had been reached you know in terms of Really, really, just continuing after, as I say, the sort of anxiety and sort of confusion of, of why Silence Wind had so much success. That I'm very grateful for it. It's, it's, it's allowed me to have a, a successful career in the music industry over the last four or five years. But it it um, it really threw me. Like I didn't. I no longer understood my own worth in a sense. And uh, getting my head around that, yeah, it took it took a long time. And Wait Falls was the the result of that. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, for someone who had been on the road from such a young age and 
to be burning out at 24 or 25 and to suddenly find success i could easily see how that'd be confusing because you're still like you're still figuring out who you are yeah. as you're going through <laughs> this i know yeah i know yeah it's god i've done some dumb shit <laughs> 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 oh funny. i think we all probably say that to ourselves sometimes but yeah it, it, I, I really still am learning and now i'm 28 so i feel like there's this nice thing that sort of happens around you, sort of 27, 28, where you start sort of settling into, really settling into who you are. But yeah, I, I really, really, at time, definitely hadn't figured myself out. And I, I don't think I really have yet, but it's kind of a gift of hindsight. You know, I'm like, oh, if only I knew to just relax at the time and just, you know, uh, not, not sort of so so much fear and anxiety in my music like uh, mm. I'm sure I would have made a wonderful follow up album to Silent Twin but as it turned out it, it took me two and a half years to get my head around it mm-hmm. well and sometimes it does take that rightfully so because you need to figure out who you are within that windfall because suddenly you're being pushed to a much larger audience and they want to know who you are and they're starting to build their own idea of who you are yeah, totally. Yeah, it's a and, and and the best way to learn who you are is to fuck up. <laughs> really, <laughs> that's that's the quickest way to to grow and to come to, you know, albeit kind of painful and and difficult uh, conclusions, or at least getting to those conclusions is painful and difficult. But really, making mistakes is, for me anyway, I think that's how you discover mm-hmm. who you are. So it was, it was, it's a, it's a mistake I'm very grateful for. Well, if you can't learn from your mistakes, what's the point in making them, right? I, of course, definitely want to jump into the week-long process of recording Weight Falls, especially after throwing out an album you had been working on for over a year. But of course, before we go ahead and do that, I want to go and play the listeners of the Desert Tiger podcast one of the tracks off of your 2017 album, Wait Falls. But before I go ahead and do that, I just want to go ahead and ask the listeners of the Desert Tiger podcast if they have gone and copped themselves some sweet Desert Tiger merch, some DTP swag over at ilovedtp.com, that being I-L-O-V-E-D-T-P.com, and that is because ilovedtp.com is the best place where you can support this show straight up. There is no middleman, there is no sponsor, there is no nothing else, it's just you getting yourself a t-shirt, and the hats are coming very soon. We're actually looking at about in two weeks. In two weeks, the hats are going to be on the store ready for your purchasing delight. The tank tops are going to be following that very quickly. But of course, you can go and head over to that store right now and grab yourself a sick traditional logo t-shirt we have a ton of those available here on the store and you can rep the dtp wherever you want to be in style that is right so what are you waiting for head on over to i love dtp.com grab yourself some sweet desert tiger merch because that goes straight back into this show which then 
allows me to produce more content for you guys. It is a win-win friggin' situation, baby! That is so right. And maybe some of you guys are listening to this podcast while you're driving around in your car. Maybe it's not a car you bought brand new, but that's okay. Because you know what? Everybody wants in their life has to have a good, a reliable second-hand car. Morning wanders in, taps on the window. Parked on the street in a side of town that I've never seen before. I stumble to the street, make a call on a payphone. Still have a sleep if you pick up now, then I'll probably come home. Suitcase marry me. I'm addicted to no one And a part of me is here Another part of me is gone Like heaven in a cage Don't need a world that doesn't change And did I stumble? I'm a little bit in pieces
the Desert Tiger Podcast. So considering that you recorded Wait Falls in pretty much the course of a week, do you feel that you are able to capture the growth of that period in time? Do you feel like it represents that? Yeah, it did. Yeah, it was like a, it was a feeling of like, that's why I call it Wait Falls. It, feel, it felt like an enormous amount of weight had just fallen away and I was able to, to move properly. I was able to ascend to what I was wanting to ascend to very very quickly because all of a sudden there was a there was a throwing out that album was an enormous cathartic moment of like oh god you know like i did, had no idea how much this music was just confusing me and weighing me down and so i was yeah i was able to it was almost like a kind of a slingshot you know being held back for so long it allowed me to just creatively just fling myself into the next album with such vigor, I mean, it was a crazy week. I was kind of, I was probably writing and recording sort of 16, 17 hours a day. But it was, it was phenomenally exciting. It was very cathartic. Um, and it felt, for the first time in, in a year or two, it really felt right. It really felt like the right. I felt like I was, I was back to understanding what was right. I felt like I had some answers in the palm of my hand for a moment there. And so I was able to do it very quickly. All right, fantastic. And you've taken the momentum of that and it's gotten you back onto the road. It's gotten you back into some various cities. So how has the, uh, after kind of burning out for a bit there, how has uh, getting back into the swing of things been for you? It's been really good. Yeah, it's been really good. I'm sort of, I find I can sort of flow a bit more now. I find sort of, I kind of go with the flow. Things don't work me up as much. Like, if fly, I got to this stage where flying made me very anxious. Now, part of that is like being on my own and having to move around about 100 kilos of equipment gets really stressful, especially when you're kind of put in situations where you don't know how to get from one place to the other with all of your stuff and you have too much to move in one go. So flying would become a real, real challenge. And I was doing so much flying and so much traveling I just hated it. I just really, I was so exhausted. I could just, I, I just would so desperately long to just be still and stop. And now it's great. But I'm, I'm sort of, I don't resist it as much, you know. I just go through the, the, the challenges of traveling. Touring is quite a challenging thing to do. It, it leads you to a lot of situations where you don't have the normal things that people have to keep themselves comfortable and uh, balanced. And these days I, I feel like I sort of flow through it with a bit more kind of I sort of surrender to it a bit more and and find that through a lack of resistance the situations become much more manageable on a day-to-day basis and and from there like quite enjoyable you know uh, sort of have more time to more time and more energy to give to all of the beautiful moments that happen even you know just sitting on a plane and eating some shitty airport food could be a really enjoyable experience if it's kind of sort of done with the right kind of mindfulness and the right kind of appreciation for the simple just the simple process of having somebody bring you food and sitting down and making the most out of a little airport meal you know and 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 airplane meal and so now i really love touring again i'm really enjoying all of the travel um i just spent three weeks in south africa we were there's a lot of flying there's a lot of traveling but i had some great opportunities to go surfing and had some I, i got a night off at a festival where i was able to hang out the next day and just really kind of I camped in a tent there and really just immersed myself in the festival property again because 
most of the time these days you sort of uh, I sort of drive in in a van play the gig drive out back at a hotel near the airport for an early flight to the next thing the next day sort of thing so it was really cool to be able to like stay in a tent and stay at the festival and appreciate it and yeah and I've flown over to London and I'm having a fabulous time in London at the moment and heading to Devon tomorrow to record some more music and looking for a surfboard you know so I can get some waves and I don't know now touring to me has become kind of um the magic is is back and and it's sort of come through just surrendering to the good and the bad that that is inevitable in life no matter what you do you know but it's it's present there in touring maybe in more extreme amounts both because you have these these moments it's just such euphoria you know such special moments i can't believe that we're doing this i can't believe we're having this experience and then you have moments where you're you know sort of 38 hours into into international flights and travel and you're just fucking really really struggling and you're exhausted and you, you know the, the the airline has just charged you an extra thousand dollars in excess fees and you feel really really kind of drained and awful so it's like allowing myself to flow through the the joys and the, the the struggles of touring and sort of surrender to that process has really brought the magic back into it all mm-hmm. well i know that being on the road there's definitely a lot that you can't control especially when you're touring yeah. in so many different places like you said you have vans in three different locations and trying to manage not only like keeping alone trying to keep three vans operational to stay on the road while communicating with just promoters and everything else I there's days where I can definitely see how that could be hard but after taking a break I can definitely see how also that could give you the appreciation for being able to experience these moments exactly yeah and it, it really is about it's about appreciating you know i mean a lot of people look at uh, at the life of a touring musician and think oh my god you're living the dream you know how have you kind of cheated your way into this lifestyle and it's true there's, there's so much to be appreciative appreciative of there are some realities of touring that don't dawn on a lot of people but at the same time, you know, a healthy appreciation for what is a a very blessed lifestyle, a very very fortunate opportunity that that comes from a lot of privilege. It's and it's important being in a position of privilege. It's fucking important that you appreciate it. <laughs> so it's it's yeah, appreciation is really the key to to, to flowing through it all in an enjoyable and and you know productive good way. So yeah, my appreciation levels are just sky high at the moment well and definitely there's a lot of buskers who will never even get to experience touring the majority of their own country absolutely absolutely yeah it's true something that (laughs) you've started with the beginning of traveling again and with the release of your upcoming EP I am here on May 3rd is sort of <laughs> recording in a lot of these various different countries that you have built yourself in that you have grown in and that you have traveled through exactly yeah it's a it's a pretty wild new concept but you know I've recorded quite a few albums now I've enjoyed the recording process and I've not enjoyed the recording process. I've sort of got my head around the inevitable differences between recording music and 
and performing music on the stage. And I just began to realize that that you know, I needed to find some new formats that would creatively kind of excite me. And and what what I had always done was travel, 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 tour, 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 pull up stops somewhere, spend a month or, or six weeks in a place where there was a recording studio and a producer and make the music and then return to traveling. And what I began to realize was uh, the way I write songs is normally I find myself as kind of a, a vessel, really, for an emotional kind of... Like the things that are around me and the way that I experience them emotionally, they're the feelings that I want to portray through my music. So I started to realize that what I really wanted to do was record during my travels. Um, and so we came up with this idea of uh, sort of doing four EPs that go together and having each one be recorded in a different location with a different producer and sort of travel around the world for a year. Um, yeah, kind of going to these places and, and recording this music. So I Am is the the first of four EPs which have come out and each one is a continuation of a phrase that will sort of, the phrase itself will be complete once the fourth EP comes out. Um, and yeah, this first one was recorded with a, uh, sort of electronic house producer in Berlin last summer. Okay, first off, I gotta say, I just got chills because I love when somebody puts that much thought into something that, like, the titles of these albums are actually gonna all flow together, and that just makes me excited to oh, find you. out what they're actually <laughs> going to be. So, I mean, that gave me chills. And one question cool. that I know that I definitely have on my mind is you actually just brought up that Vincent Camp, your uh, recent producer for I Am, is a house producer, a hip-hop producer. So that's a little bit different from what you're used to. What did working with Vincent not only like bring to the studio, but to your music? Well, we, we met in a co-writing session, actually. My publishers had organized some um, so I do quite a lot of co-writing when I'm traveling, just meet up with artists and write songs together. And he was an artist that, in the world of co-writing, it doesn't, the genre is not so important. You're just trying to get a good song. So I, I, I love being put with all kinds of artists and all kinds of producers. And, and so I, I ended up in a session with Vincent. Yes, it's kind of predominantly does sort of house music and hip-hop music. And we had such a good day. I loved the way he worked. I loved the character that he was. He's a, he's a really interesting guy. And at that time, it was right around the time that I was beginning to kind of come up with this 4AP concept. And I was spurred on by my excitement at feeling as though I'd actually found the first producer in the first location, uh, and that was Vince in, in Berlin. He was so uh, influential from, from, from the first day I met him in what I wanted to do. And interestingly, I didn't actually tell him what I was doing. I just organized some days for us to do some more music together. And, you know, so he didn't even understand that we were potentially recording an EP or anything. He was just kind of psyched that, you know, this Australian guy that he wrote a song with wanted to come back in. And we, we spent, I think we had maybe, set, well, I think we had eight days all up. We had eight days. And we began to realize we were very easily able to record an entire song in a day. And part of that was his style of production because in, in, in the electronic and hip-hop world, 
that things move very quickly. You know, he was he was quite shocked that I wanted to do so many vocal takes. Um, he would think that two or three vocal takes would be enough because they do so much. You know, in in those genres, especially now, there's so much treatment done to things that you don't have to sing in tune. You know what I mean? Like, oh, that's cool. They just fix that. Like everybody expects the vocals to have a set amount of auto tune and kind of you know, treatment anyway. So you don't have to sing it really, really well. You just have to enjoy yourself a couple of times and move on. So that was really interesting. I'd be like, oh, no, I've got to sing that again, so I haven't got it right. And he'd be like, man, you've done it five times. I'd be like, bro, on other albums, I would do like 30 vocal takes <laughs> more, you know. So so he, he worked really fast, and that was cool for me. Like, I kept it so creatively engaging. It was It was very easy to remain, you know, in these really heightened states of creative flow. Um, so there was that influence, which was really phenomenal. He was a bit of a master at the samples he used. Um, he picked, he was very minimal with his sampling and, and this sort of electronic element he added to most of the music on the EP is, I mean, it's very present, but it doesn't feel, if you still feel like you're listening to, you know, what's essentially sort of a folk artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was, that was partly his kind of, him picking some quite minimal arrangements, but also, you know, he's really tasty with the sounds he picked, you know, he picked like really natural sounding cahoons or sort of, um, or beautiful sort of woody, earthy kick drums and things like that. And and so that was, it was fantastic for me because I loved the idea of, of you know, I listened to a lot of electronic music. I listened to quite a bit of hip hop and I don't really know how to incorporate that into my music though. It feels like a sort of, you know, if you're going to take an enormous genre change like that, you have to you have to have sort of David Bowie levels of of brilliance slash dedication to the new style of music that you're moving into. And you know, I just didn't feel on my own as if I could take that step. Really, I didn't feel confident to. So he allowed me to work and be inspired within different genres of music, um, but on my own terms and in a way that felt genuine to me and in a way that felt um, very me. So what we ended up with is is this kind of very interesting mix of sort of uh, singer songwriter um, kind of folk music and and you know, like a German style sort of house production. <laughs> yeah, no. Listening to the album uh, earlier, uh, you can definitely <laughs> like hear the parts and how they complement the music, but they definitely. They don't steal your attention, I guess I would say. Like, they aren't at the forefront, mm. but, like, they're helping build the mood. Especially, like, on uh, Fallen Rainbows, uh, building mm. the energy up in that first minute of that song where it just has, like, that low sound in the background, and it just builds <laughs> this really beautiful. Yeah, it's cool, huh? That's one of my favorite moments, actually, in terms of describing the the musical kind of collaboration because it's wonderful it's just the song starts with just this gentle strumming acoustic guitar and kind of like vocal it's all about the lyric and then all of a sudden you have this odd kind of hip-hop sound just just coming up out of nowhere so that, that for me is one of the most ideal examples of of how it just somehow bloody works it's it's a crazy thing you know i think i think part of it to be honest is, is the lack of pressure he didn't understand that we were even potentially recording something that would be released I, I i was like wakeful to come out so recently that i i didn't have any huge it was it was it was a bit of a risk i guess but i was also like hey if it's just a trip to berlin and i made some music with this cool edm producer and and you know got to experience 
Berlin in the middle of summer for a few weeks and flew home. Like, ah, oh, it cost me a bit of money, but what a cool thing to have done. So there's a certain beauty to it that I think stems from just the lack of pressure and, and just two people being genuinely uh, creative. Well, it created a lot of beautiful uh, emotion driving moments, I must say. Oh, brilliant. Thank you. One thing that you can definitely tell in I Am is that you try to capture the nature of Germany and Berlin, but Berlin is definitely like a very uh, classic city (laughs) with a lot of architecture. So how does one go about capturing the nature of a city that has been built and proven for so long? Well, it's funny, actually. It's it sort of happened by accident. Like, if if anything, I was planning for the, the Berlin EP to be very sort of uh, industrial and very, you know, because I love the graffiti there. I love the kind of the, the way there's all these decrepit buildings just covered in graffiti that people are turning into, you know, warehouse clubs and, and you know, there's wild sort of parties happening. And um, I love all of that. So I was ready for a real kind of... Tip- just bury myself in the city, really. And then the first, we had a friend who, who offered to, to have us for the first week we were there. And she just, just happened to live in this house on the edge of this beautiful big forest. And so we started going into the forest with the, with the recording equipment and, um, and, and the, the video camera and, and shooting all of this stuff. It was like very natural and the, the birds were singing and, and, and the, the kind of the full swing of summer was, you know, just racing through the forest. It was beautiful. So, so we started to, to kind of create this. Creatively, we were looking at things as a, a, in a way of kind of contrasting the beautiful natural experience that we'd had in the first week uh, with, the, with the kind of gritty Berlin sort of streets uh, in the second week. And, and so it became this wonderful kind of, um, yeah, contrast between the, the two different weeks that we had and the two different experiences. Okay, fantastic. I... I really enjoy how it just, you came there with an idea, but something else just came and made its way into, and it just couldn't be denied. Exactly, yeah, it's just too beautiful, the forest is too beautiful, and, and the holy, I, I, can't, I guess I can't get away from the fact that I, I seem to gravitate to natural areas, because the whole 4EP thing, I mean, we're going to do a bunch of stuff in London while I'm here which will give another sort of city element to, to what I'm doing. But, but yeah, I, I, the entire four EPs are kind of predominantly in these beautiful natural environments. Okay, so you've mentioned that one of the EPs is you're currently working on in London here. What about the other two? Where are those being crafted? Have they been crafted already? They have, yeah. So this is a, I'm, I'm about to set out and record the last one in the next few weeks. The other two, one was recorded in the Blue Mountains in Australia, which is a really stunning kind of mountain range, uh, two or three hours inland from Sydney. And I just felt myself kind of gravitating to that part of the world. I just really wanted to go there and just create music. So that, that was kind of something I'd wanted to do for quite a few years and was able to do. Uh, and the other one was recorded in Canada um, in on Vancouver Island in a little town called Sydney, kind of just north of Victoria near the ferries there. And yeah, we was recorded in this studio that was kind of right on the water and, and uh, with the British Columbian rainforest kind of towering around us and, and that was a beautiful experience as well. 
Mm-hmm. Definitely a good area to capture uh, the idea of nature. Yeah, absolutely. God, we had it in abundance there. And it was beautiful weather too. Like it should have been getting cold, but last year it kind of stuck around a bit, the good weather, didn't it? So we really lucked mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. And then with that in mind too, you've also got a bunch of places that you're going to be touring here in the near future. You just mentioned that you were in South Africa. Um, there's going to be some UK yeah, dates, yeah. Germany, the Netherlands, mm-hmm. France. Um, we mentioned earlier that there's possibly going to be some Canadian dates being announced in the future. Uh, is there anywhere like else that Kim Churchill would like to take his message, his journey, and like to take in the culture at this point in his career? Um, oh, I'd love to go and tour in Italy, to be honest. I'd love to tour Italy, and I'd love to do the, the Nordic countries a little bit more, Sweden and Norway and Denmark. Um, Scotland as well. I haven't played in Scotland in quite a few years. And Ireland as well. And Brazil. I'd love to go to Brazil. So, <laughs> yeah, there's plenty, to be honest. Uh, it's, it's hard. So it's hard to fit. You, you know, you sort of, it's nice to get back to a place probably once a year, and it's very hard to fit, the, fit all the places you want to tour into a year. So, so yeah, if, 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 if I can get to some of those new places, though, that'd be fantastic. I'd really enjoy it. All right. Well, I'm sure that they would really enjoy it as well. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today, Kim, to speak about your career, its progression, and, of course, the new project that you have coming up. Oh, you're welcome, man. Thank you so much. It was lovely to chat with you. All right. Uh, where can the listeners find out more about Kim Churchill if they want to? I would go to www.kimchurchill.com. It's kind of the mothership of all info. Um, otherwise, you know, social media platforms, quite active on Instagram. And, uh, yeah, or just Google me. <laughs> okay. All right, so one last question before I let you go. You mentioned earlier that right now you're looking for a surfboard to possibly go and hit some waves while you're in the UK. Obviously, as a Australian, a strong surfer background, where are some of the best waves that you've found away from home? Uh, well, I'm, the one I'm going to say is is purely based on it, on it how it happened in the last couple of weeks basically but I went and surfed in Jeffreys Bay in South Africa which is quite a quite a famous uh, surf break but quite difficult to get to and um, I, I managed to get there for the first time in my life and I had an incredible time and I would say really that's one of the best waves I've ever surfed is a place called Super Tube in uh, Jeffreys Bay so yeah that's my pick for now is South Africa man that's a, that's a great surfing destination all right. Well, hopefully you can find something in the UK that li- lives up. <laughs> yeah, I doubt it, but he's hoping. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least, at least, hopefully, a good wave or two then. Exactly. Yeah, I'm not actually very picky when it comes to waves. I'm the eternal optimist, so I'm I'm sure I'll find some some uh, good ways to keep me entertained. Hey, man, being able to surf is always a privilege, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much for joining me. I can't wait for the album to drop. Like I said earlier, I Am drops on May 3rd on all platforms. Go ahead, cop it for yourselves. Some great tracks on this album. Once again, thank you for joining me today, Kim. 
Oh, thank you, Colter. Thank you for having me. And uh, I'll see you sometime in this crazy life journey. That is something that I am absolutely positive of as well. And part of that reason is because Kim recently announced some dates coming up in Canada for November. But of course, before then, this May 3rd, I am officially drops on all platforms. If you are in Australia, you can hear it right now. If you are listening to this episode after the day that it releases, this album is available on all listening platforms. Spotify, Apple Music, Google Play Music, wherever you stream your music, wherever you buy your music, get on out there, give Kim a follow, cop this album, and support fantastic music. And of course, before he gets to Canada as well, we spoke that Kim is going to be doing quite a bit of touring, and in the next two months, he is going to be doing a lot of Europe. So here we go. Monday, May 13th, he's going to be in Munchen. In Tuesday, May 14th, he's going to be in Dresden playing the Groove Station. Wednesday, May 15th, Berlin at Beta House. Amsterdam on the 17th at Bitterzoit, Hamburg on the 18th of May, followed up by Cologne on the 20th. Then he makes his way on over to Paris for May 21st. Then we head to Great Britain where Manchester is going to be getting its taste of Kim Churchill on May 24th, followed by Bristol on the 25th. Nottingham on the 26th, London on the 28th, and then he is back to Australia for June. Sydney on the 7th, Fortitude Valley on June 8th, Melbourne, Australia on the 15th, the 21st, he's going to be in Adelaide, Perth on the 22nd, and of course, here are those Canadian dates for all you music lovers of the Great Maple Nation. On November the 1st, St. Catharines is going to be getting its taste of Kim Churchill as he brings these new EPs through town. Toronto, Ontario on the 2nd of November, followed by Hamilton, Ontario. Winnipeg is going to be on the 7th of November, followed by my hometown, my birthing place of Regina, Saskatchewan on the 8th of November, so you Regina people, get on out to that. My beautiful people in Saskatoon, Kim is going to be coming through your town on the 9th, Calgary on the 13th, Canmore, Alberta on the 14th, Sherwood Park was on the 12th, sorry, I kind of uh, skipped over that one, and then we have Victoria Island on the 16th, and Vancouver on the 21st, apparently there's going to be a few more dates announced in that range to fill it up, so if your city was missed, go ahead and follow Kim Churchill on social media right now, so that if he is coming through your town, you don't miss that announcement, because I know that I definitely don't want to myself. Alright, I want to go ahead and thank the wonderful team at Strut Entertainment for helping put this interview together. As you guys know, I have been working with the team at Strut a little bit recently on some fantastic interviews, and we have some other amazing things coming your way very soon, courtesy of Melissa and her great team. 
over there. I was hoping that I could make my way down to Canadian Music Week this week to meet with a bunch of Canadian music industry legends and great people and one of those groups that I really wanted to meet was the Strut Entertainment Group. Unfortunately, that is not going to happen. One thing that they are helping out with though is next week's episode because they went ahead and hooked me up with Jeff Burrows, the longtime drummer of the Tea Party. That's right, multi- platinum selling band in Canada and Australia, the freaking Tea Party, one of my personal top three Canadian bands of all time. I am so excited to have Jeff Burrows on this show next week as I speak with you. I also want to go ahead and thank you guys, the listeners here of the Desert Tiger Podcast, for your continued support. Those of you who leave reviews on iTunes, you don't know how much that actually helps this show chart. If you haven't left a review on iTunes, I would be absolutely ecstatic if you guys would go ahead and do that. And heck, I might even read your review of this show here live on this episode, give you a shout out as a big thank you to those of you who go and share these episodes on your social media, the ones that you enjoy. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be so pleased. But there's some of you who go ahead and share every episode on your social media, and I am so ecstatic that I have die-hard people who support this show, who listen to it every single week, who are waiting to get their hands on the episode for their hearing pleasure. Thank you guys so much. And if you want to take that extra step, that one step further, of course, you can head on over to ilovedtp.com to support the show that much further. That helps me to get better equipment and to continue to bring you incredible interviews with incredibly talented musicians such as today's guest, Kim Churchill. All right, I want to get very, very serious for a moment. There's been a lot of things going on in the entertainment industry in Canada. Recently, the group Widmore had their van broken into twice during their West Coast tour. The first time, nothing was stolen. The second time, they were not so fortunate. So if you guys want to go and check out Widmore and possibly give them some support. They are an incredibly talented group that are making a ton of noise out of Calgary, Alberta, and they would appreciate any help that they could get. Another thing, and this one is much, much more serious, and you guys are like, yo, their van just got broken into twice. What's more serious than that? And actually, the first guest, the first person who allowed me into his home to interview him for this podcast, the first person to ever grace an episode of the DTP, Hotshot Danny Duggan, was in an accident yesterday, that being May 1st, while he was on the road traveling for CWE's Decade of Dominance Tour. Danny Duggan is in his... I I don't even know what to say. I... All I know is reading the messages, I am so happy that everyone inside of that vehicle made it out alive. Danny, um, if you haven't heard what happened and you want to, head on over to the Canadian Wrestling Elite's Facebook page or their Twitter 
and read the post. Danny is incredibly lucky to still be alive. And the way I see it, he still has a lot of memories left to create, whether they continue to be in the wrestling industry or with his newborn daughter. So I am extremely happy for Danny that he gets to see his newborn daughter again and that she gets to maybe see her father in the ring sometime. My best wishes go out to Danny Duggan. And if any of you want to reach out and help Danny in his time of need, as he is an independent contractor and, well, we don't really get the benefits of a lot of other things, Danny could really, really use your help right now. Head on over to the Canadian Wrestling Elite website, their Facebook page, their Twitter. Before you even head to ilovedtp.com, fuck ilovedtp.com this week, and you head on over and you support Canadian Wrestling Elite in their time of need. Alright, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Desert Tiger Podcast. Like I said, next week on the show, Jeff Burrows of the Tea Party is going to be joining me to talk all about their new single, The Black River.